Our time stamp, for what it's worth, it is roughly about 1,000 B.C. So that's roughly about 3,000 years ago. Uh, even people who don't know anything about the Bible somehow kind of know about King David. And there's a reason for it. I mean, the guy took a, a, a small, tiny kingdom and actually enlarged it ten times its size. Oh, that's profound. That's kind of something noteworthy. And he's considered the greatest king that Israel has ever had. But he was, more importantly, he was, he was a man after God's own heart. Now, that doesn't mean he was without fault. I mean, the guy was as human as the next guy. But there are things that he does that are actually really, really cool to learn from. And, I mean, and again, he's a guy with a lot of passion. And a guy with a lot of passion really needs to have a good lasso to kind of keep things tightened in or else the guy's just going to explode in some crazy direction. So David is in a place now where he has just been handed the entire kingdom. He's, he, I mean, he was kind of called, I don't know if you knew this, he was called at about 15 years old. Think about where you were at 15. Think about where Hugo could have been at 15. He probably looked like he was two uh, as I look at him now, and he's in his 20s. But think about how, how it would have been for all of a sudden someone to say, hey, by the way, the whole, uh, all, uh, you know, the monarchy is over and they're going to hand you the throne of the UK. What would that be like? At 15. And then just to make it more fun, Prince Charles and William and all those, Prince Charles goes mental and starts hiring all of MI9, 6, 12, whatever there. And they all try to kill you when you're like Jason Bourne running around for your life from the ages of 15 to 30. If you can imagine how crazy that would be. So for half of your life, you spend running just trying not to die not trying to do amazing things. And during that time, God raises up 600 other guys that really have a problem with the current king who doesn't belong in the throne. He's been handed his P45. He's been fired. And he's just at a place now where God's like, step off the throne. But the guy has no interest in doing so. And that's why David runs. David runs because God promised him a kingdom but he wasn't going to take it by force. He was only going to take it if God handed it to him, if it was handed to him. Now, as a Christian, as we get ready to get in this text, understand that relates to us in a very heavy way. Uh, there's a big difference between what is often called contemporary Christianity, where the idea is Jesus is kind of a get-out-of-hell-free card, you know, where the idea is, I don't want to go to hell, Jesus paid for my price, and cool, I'll just take Jesus and, and I'll just live my life. It's sort of like, you know, I have him in my back pocket when I need him, and I pull him out and say, see, check it out, I'm not going to hell. Well, God doesn't do anything without the intent of creating a relationship. And please understand that. There are people out there that are going to use you. We know that in the world. Where everything they're driven by is kind of sizing you up the moment they meet you and see what you're worth, what they can get from you. And the more you have to offer, be that in the way that you look or in the things that you own or the position you have, well, the more people are going to size you up. You know that. And to be honest, if they get what they're looking for, no matter what that thing is, if it's an it, if they get the thing they're looking for, they're done with you. They're going to go on to the next person because they got what they were looking for. And then we live life that way. Like we kind of always looking over our shoulder, wondering how the next person's going to do that. What their song is, what their game is to kind of play that, to kind of get us in that place where we give up something else one more time. And then someone tells you God loves you and you're like... I've heard that word love a lot. But have you ever met anyone that everything around them is driven by a relationship? 
not by getting stuff from you, but just being with you. Enjoying the sound of your laugh. Memorizing the freckles on your face. Just calling you and with one of those, you hang up, no, you hang up. You know, that kind of thing where it's just kind of cool to know that, that they're thinking about you. And everything about their life kind of reflects that. Well, if you live in a whole life where everything is about getting abused and taken from, it's really hard to kind of say yes to that, isn't it? And let's be honest. Because you're kind of like, okay, when is this going to drop and it's going to just be like everything else? And there's the sad part. And the sad part is that God's never like that. Everything about God is about having a relationship with you. Jesus didn't die for you to send you to heaven. Jesus died for you to be with you. Because a perfect God cannot, inter- cannot have a relationship with a perfectly sinful person, a person who's really guilty. The guilt has to be paid for. And God's so in love with you, he would rather die than live without you. He sent Jesus to pay the price so that all your guilt could be punished without having to punish you for it. Now, he didn't do that so you could go to heaven. He did that with you. He did that for you so you could be with him. And God didn't enter into contracts with you. He enters into covenants with you. The difference is huge. A contract demands some form of future action, but a covenant demands a relationship. Everything God does is, is all about a relationship. And that's really huge. So if you have said yes to the gift, let me say this. If you haven't said yes to Jesus Christ, let me make this clear. If someone dropped their knee, the ring was in their hand, they opened up and said, will you be mine? They're not saying, hey, will you just change your Facebook status to whatever, what is it, taken, married, whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, no, it's not about that. It's not about you just changing your, you know, the role on your taxes. Thank you, by the way. It's about having a relationship. And God paid, paid your bill for all of your guilt. That's what Jesus did by dying on the cross. But understand, dying on the cross is as much half the story as baptizing would be. If we did it that way, we'd just hold you under until the bubbles stop. You pull you down, but you pick you back up again because there's a whole new you. And just like a marriage, to be honest, a real, honest, true, good marriage is two deaths and one resurrection, if you think about it. It's the death of two single people and the rebirth of one married couple. And we kind of get that, right? Well, that's the way it is with Jesus. The same way that I come to Christ and the old me dies, but a whole new me that's united with him resurrects. And everything he does is for a relationship. So everything that God has been doing with David is very similar. So with me, I give my life to Jesus. I accept that gift. The Bible says if you're willing to confess Jesus as Lord, but also believe in your heart that he died and rose from, he rose from the grave, God says, I'll save you. I'll make you whole is literally the term, so-so. But then I say, okay, yeah, okay, Jesus, now you're my Savior. He goes, but he deserves to be Lord, the king of your life. And then the same battle I see with this old king and David is the same battle I find in my own heart. A battle where the old me and the old ways are kind of like the old king who really has no interest in giving up the throne where all the decisions are made, where the rightful king that God ordained should actually be stepping in. And the moment that happens, amazing things happen. And that's what we've been looking at through this book of Second Samuel, is what it means to make the proper king, put him in the proper place. I mean, you ever see a couple where 
they're always jockeying for position. You know, they're always kind of fighting with each other because they're not really sure who's supposed to lead and who's supposed to step behind. And everything's about alphaing with the next person. And it's just, it's uncomfortably to be around a couple like that because they're always just so busy trying to figure out where they belong with each other or fighting to find a place. Well, how much weirder would that be with God? David now is in a place where the entire kingdom of Israel has been given to him. And David, I remind you, never took any of it by force. He will only take the throne if it's given to him. In the same way, Jesus isn't going to just beat you into submission. He really wants you to hand him the throne of your heart. I'm so thankful he's a gentleman. He says he stands at the door and knocks. He says, if you're willing to let me in, I will come in and be with you. I'll dine with you. And the idea of eating together was this intimate experience. I mean, we might say like on date where there's this intimate time. He doesn't say, I stand at the door and knock, and if you don't come, I'm going to beat the door down. You know, I mean, that's kind of almost the way it's, you know, like Jesus shows up with like a bandolero, and he's like, you know, open the door, I'll huff and I'll puff. That's just not this, the Jesus of Scripture here. There is a lover that created you who is in love with you, whose thoughts outnumber the sand on the shore who painted a sunset for you, who made the sun rise and made the day warm today, put a romance in the rain, put a beautiful mystery in the fog, who's been growing bouquets of flowers to give to you everywhere you walk. He's a very romantic God who would just love to spend more time with you. Now with that in mind, David is in a place now that just because he's become king doesn't mean that all the land is going to be his. Filtered within, if you will, polluting the land, and I hate to say it that way, but spotting the land, lacing the land, are these enemy encampments, these little spots and these corners and these places where the enemy has decided to make a home, the enemy that wants to see the complete destruction of Israel. And nobody seems to be more common than the nation of the Philistines, and we'll talk about them in a moment. And the moment that David becomes king over all the nation, the Philistines pop up and they declare war. And we can expect that. You expect for a moment, you're like, Jesus, I really want you to have the proper place in my life. And all of a sudden, people that you thought were nice to you freak out and turn into like the exorcist. You know, and all of a sudden they're like, what is wrong with you? You went mental. You lost your brain. It's amazing how nice people turn into not so nice people when you really give your life to Christ. But I've learned this. You fall in love with someone, all of the competition just gets ugly. That's what happens when you fall in love. And if they want to diss you, well, too bad. They lost. So David is going to battle. And in the same way, we're going to find these battles in our own life. But take a look at it with me, with that lengthy introduction. Verse 19. Chapter 5, 2 Samuel 5.19 says this. And actually, let's go back. I think you have 5.17, don't you? Now, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it. He went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves at the valley of Rephaim. Try that word. It's a fun word. Rephaim. 
see, because you guys are from different countries, this makes it fun for me. Because most of you know how to roll your R's, for instance. Refaim. And you got to have that. But you got to, you know, you got to have that Mediterranean passion when you say a word like that. You can't go, Refaim. Because it's, and because especially when you hear what the word means. But try it with me. Refaim. Try that. There we go. Because the word means giant. It is the valley of giants. And that's the fun part. So they set themselves up in a place. And it's kind of a huge deal, by the way. And we'll talk about the Philistines. But it says then, so David, verse 19, inquired of the Lord and said, shall I go up against the Philistines? Who will deliver, or will you, sorry, deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went up to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of the place Baal Perizim, which, by the way, means Lord of the Breakthrough. And they left their images there. That's the Philistines. They left their images. That's because they worshipped other idols, or idols, I should say. And David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of... Oh, say it. Give it to me. The valley of what? Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, and he said, and then the Lord said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come up upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching on the tops of mulberry trees that you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Giba as far as Gither. Now, chances are, unless you're sort of a geographist, you're probably going to go, oh my goodness, Giba as far as Gezer, that's crazy. Well, it's about 20 miles. And when you're doing it on foot, that's an awful lot of space. So think of it this way. The battle takes place here, and David drives them out way beyond Hertfordshire. That should tell you something. That's quite a bit of distance. Matter of fact, if you actually made your way to High Barnet, to be honest, that's half the distance. So he drove them to High Barnet, and then he drove them beyond that another High Barnet as far away. That's quite a bit of distance for a bunch of guys. The Philistines were known for being an invincible army, but who in the world are they? So we better do this. Let's pray. We'll dive into our text a little bit. And uh, I I have a feeling that's as far as we're going to get today. Pray with me, would you please? Father God in heaven, I know that over this next half hour, you are going to do an amazing work in each of our hearts if we let you. I thank you that you're a gentleman and you are asking permission right now. Though you are God of the universe, yet you're still asking us permission so that we could say yes. We could have the honor of saying yes to the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, to speak to us intimately. And you're saying the same voice that turns, you know, 100 foot, 30, 40 meter trees into toothpicks, the same voice that strips the forest bare, the same voice that could cast a mountain the Himalayas into the ocean if you wanted to is the same voice that quiets to a still small voice so our brains and ears don't explode to speak to our heart of hearts even right now. And because you are so perfect, you know how to speak fluent us. In this time, you know how to actually speak so that every one of us hears you 
in the way that we understand that each of us individually, right where we're at in life, right where we're at in, in regards to our understanding of you and all of that, God, you know how to speak what we need to hear tonight in such a way that we would be so encouraged and blessed, but more than anything, that we would recognize that you love us and that you want us and that you want to call us tonight into this amazing place with you. So Lord, make really clear that next step or two or three that you want us to take with you and make that clear in this text. And I just thank you. I thank you that in this small set of verses, you make clear to us how important it is to stay current. So Lord, please have your way. Lord, just so come upon me that you would do all the work and and that God would just get out of your way and that you would do, Lord, what only you can do. So have your way, please. So intimize with each of us that our hearts would resonate, our spirits would resonate with you and we would go, wow, that was clearly God. And we would respond accordingly. So I commit every moment of this to you. May we have so much fun in your word and may you really speak to our heart of hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your authority. If you don't own a Bible, we'd like to give you one as long as you promise to read it. If you're just going to use it to prop up your coffee table, get something else. But we would really love for you to read it. Okay, so who in the world are the Philistines? Let's start with that. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Noah. Uh, it's a really kind of a funky story to actually have for your kids. You know, you put it in their nurseries and it's like, oh, check it out, little baby Bruno. Let's just let's just fill the room because it's where all the world dies but a family. But there's a reason for it and we will develop that in another time. But after that point, three sons are responsible for populating the whole world. Now, it is amazing how people think that's a crazy idea. So then you ask, well, how did the world get populated? And you're like, well, this thing grew gill slits and it was kind of mucus, but it grew some gill slits and then it grew some legs and the feathers fell off and it stood up and and there it was. It was a man. And I'm like, okay, well, how many of those were at one time? Because the whole world got populated by one guy that grew out of the out of the ground or out of the water or whatever. And the only reason I say that is no matter where you go with it, it's going to be a really wild idea. Because to be honest, and the reason is because we don't see a whole world being populated in front of us. Let's be honest. It'd be kind of gross anyway. But I mean, let's just be honest. That kind of thing, will it happen? And, and, and let me say it this way. Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Shem means name for what it's worth. The second son, Ham. Well, that guy has a bunch of kids. Of course, they all have a bunch of kids. But Ham specifically has four kids. Ham, by the way, for what it's worth, means hot. There you go. Your second son's name is hot. The second son of Ham, that's Noah's grandson, is a guy named Mizraim. Mizraim means to siege, by the way. And Mizraim, even to this day, is another name for Egypt. He becomes the father of the Egyptians and the northern Africans. That's Genesis 10.6, if you want to check up on me. So follow me on this. Noah, you with me so far, has a son named Ham. Ham has a son named Mizraim. You with me on that? Mizraim, the father of the Egyptians, also has a bunch of kids. As a matter of fact, for what it's worth, he's got at least six. Uh, the sixth son 
is a son, by the way, named, uh, for what it's worth, who, who, uh, whose name is Kaslechim. Kaslechim, by the way, or the, the people of the Kaslechim, means fortified. And it tells us in Genesis 10, from them came the Philistines. Now, it's important to recognize that this guy, Mizraim, the Egyptians, the father of the Egyptians, has a son that gives birth to the, if you will, to the Philistines. The Philistines then are ultimately descendants of Egyptians. Does that make sense? That's kind of how that works. So if you consider that, when people that say they're Palestinian, for instance, for what it's worth, Palestinian is just, if you will, a bastardization of the word pure, Philistia. The Philistines were basically from the lineage of Egyptians. That's important to note. Not for what it's worth. Now, there was another son that Ham had. Remember, Ham had this guy that was the father of the Egyptians named Mizraim. He had another son named Canaan. Perhaps you may not be familiar because the Canaanites, that's the people who had lived in the land of Israel before the people of Israel came in. The Canaanites, by the way, they would also, that guy would have a bunch of kids. For instance, the Jebusites, the people who lived in Jerusalem, the Amorites, the Hivites, people all the way as far north as Sidon, by the way, that's in the area of Lebanon, all the way as far south as Gaza. That's important to note. Listen, and again, if this confuses you, don't worry, I'm going to be done with this in a second. Basically, Noah has a son. Son's name is Ham. Do you remember that? Let me try it again. Noah has a son. What's his name? Beautiful. See how beautiful it is? Ham. No wonder why the Israelis have a problem with Ham. Just kidding. So, Ham. Ham has a couple sons. One son's name is Canaan. Another son's name is Mizraim. Mizraim is the father of what people? The Egyptians. Excellent. The Egyptians come from this. Canaan, on the other hand, the people of the land of Israel, they are all from this land, from this guy Canaan. Different people. So if somebody from this side says that they belong with the Canaanites, there's a problem because they're from a different line, for what it's worth. Nonetheless, all of these people tend to be enemies of Israel. Have a nice day. So that's where they start this. By Genesis 26, Abraham's son Isaac has to fight with a bunch of Philistines who keep filling in the wells that were dug for water. That's where we kind of, they sort of, sort of show up after a situation with Isaac, you know, kind of going after a famine to a king of, of the Philistines' name. For what it's worth, I've been like. No, for what it's worth. I kind of see what I see already is that the Philistines are stopping living water so you can't drink it. That's where they want. Because in essence, they will always be an enemy of Israel here. So there are people that are kind of trying to stop the people from getting water. And then what happens if you live in a desert and they stop you from getting water? What do you think is going to happen to you? you know, this is probably this is an easy question. You did. That's, the, that's what happens. You die. And of course, people are battling over the land. And so what they say is you can't have this land. And the easiest way to do that is to, die, to make you die of thirst. By Exodus chapter 13, God says that he did not lead them the way of the Philistines after Israel was taken out of the land of Egypt because he didn't want them to get into war so soon because if that was the case, they'd freak out and go back to Egypt. In the same way, maybe you said yes to Jesus and in the beginning of it, it all seemed so good. And the reason is, is that God wanted to make sure that that relationship was cemented before the hard times came where it would be tested. But do you remember what it took for Israel to actually feel free? It wasn't just leaving Egypt. God had to do something else first. By the way, for what it's worth, it also becomes where the first worship song or praise song was ever written in Scripture. Do you know there's no worship song in the book of Genesis? The first worship song is actually in Exodus 15. See, first of all, 
Israel had their back. They had left Egypt, but then Pharaoh kind of went, what am I doing? I should kill those guys. Loose paraphrase. And so he gets his armies out and they kind of chase after Israel. But Israel actually can't go any farther for a moment. Do you know what was stopping them? The Red Sea. And Israel was in a place now where they're like, we're dead. You know, because Egypt's on one side, the Red Sea's on the other. So they, they, I mean, they can't fight Egypt and they certainly can't swim across the depths and the undertow of the Red Sea. So remember what God does? He rips, if you will, the Red Sea in half so that they can actually make their way through. The reason I say that is for God to do that, it was a breakthrough for them. It was a breakthrough of water. Consider what took place. A breakthrough of water is not like you've got a dike or a wall and you poke a hole and all of a sudden all the water comes through and bursts the dam because it's, it's a breakthrough. That would be a breakthrough of the water coming at you. But the idea of seeing water and God actually breaking through so you can actually get through the water, that's another story. That seems impossible. Let's be honest. Let's say we're down in Brighton and somehow you really want to kind of take a trip or we're at the English Strait, if you will, and somehow we would really like to get over to Calais. You know, we're standing at Dover and and you're going, how in the world am I going to do this? And God says, why don't I just dry out the ground? Well, nobody thinks like that but God. Because we're going to see that term here. But what God had to do for Israel to finally realize they were free wasn't just bring them through the Red Sea, was it? Once Israel got to the other side of the Red Sea, what did God do? Well, strangely enough, the nation of Egypt, the army, chased after them. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm chasing after you, which, by the way, isn't going to happen, so don't even get that idea. But let's just say that we're, and all of a sudden, all the buildings moved out of the way and you kept walking through it. There's a part of me that kind of stops and goes, do I really want to step into that arena where clearly weird stuff is happening? Well, the Egyptians follow hard after them and then God closes up the sea. And it was when Israel looked back and could see that the enemy was done. They actually started to praise God when they realized that the enemy really was defeated. I mean, are you following me? Does that kind of make sense? And the reason I say that is there's so much of the church today that really tries to make the enemy seem like he still has all this power over you. Have you noticed that? It's like here a demon, there a demon, everywhere a demon, demon. And even though you're following Jesus, they could still show up at your bed and slap you around and pick you up and throw you out the window. And it's like, it's like the enemy never drowned in the Red Sea. It's like somewhere in it. How in the world are we going to praise God if we still are afraid of the enemy that, by the way, was completely defeated? Might I say Jesus beat him with a stick and that stick was the cross. I mean, in the end of it all, Jesus totally defeated the enemy and I get to actually be a part of that. And I look back and I still think that the devil, I mean, it doesn't matter how unhappy he is. God ripped off his arms. There's really little he can do. He can lie. And that's it. So a quick story and we'll get into our text. Didn't I already say that before? Well, hear me. Have you heard this story about a father and his son? And the son is allergic to bees and a bee flies into the car. And the bee flies in the car and the son starts to panic, as you would imagine. And he starts to freak out. And the dad just reaches over while he's driving and he just grabs the bee. And then he opens his hand and the bee flies out. The bee's still in the car. And as the bee is still in the car, the son starts to panic. He goes, Dad, I'm going to die. The bee's still loose. And the dad holds out his hand and in his hand is the stinger. See, the bee still buzzes, but he's no threat to the kid anymore because there's no way to actually get in him. I believe that's what the Lord has done the moment that he went to the cross for us. 
If you said yes to Jesus, the Father has stuck his hand around the enemy and the biggest defeat he had was death. And I can see why Paul says, oh, death, where is your sting? So David's now in a battle. And he's in a battle with these Philistines. The Philistines, by the way, they show up in just about every chapter almost of 1 Samuel. They're constantly setting up to fight Israel. Chapters 4 through 6, 7, 12, 13, 14, 17, 18, 19, 23, 30, 31. They're always trying to chase after and trying to shut down Israel. They were the people that Samson had defeated, by the way, in Judges 16. And so they've set themselves in battle. And as they set themselves in battle, David starts to ask, verse 19. He says, shall we go up and fight them? And the Lord's answer is go. Did you notice that? He says, go. I will without a doubt deliver the Philistines in your hands. So they went from a place called the Lord of Breakthrough. Wait a minute, the Lord of Breakthrough? Well, it's not going to be called that until after this battle. But as far as God's concerned, it was already called that because the victory was already there before they stepped in because God already knew the end. There's so many times, you guys, where we're going to find a problem or a challenge in our lives and God already knows the victory is on the other side. We just don't. So you know what happens? We freak out and we grow old and we get lines all over our face and we get ulcers and we get nasty and we're horrible because of a victory we have yet to see because we just don't see the victory yet. But God does. And if you look at the Lord, he is just not sweating it. And the reason is he already knows the end. So he calls the place, if you will. He calls the place a breakthrough already. Baal Perazim. So, David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. And I remind you, a breakthrough of water here is the idea to do something that would be impossible, to split and to break through, in a, if you will, sort of an immeasurable sea of people like he would to split the English Channel so you can walk from Dover to Clay. And he goes, man, do you realize what just happened? Imagine, if you will, so what David is looking at with his men as he's looking at a sea of people that want him dead. And David's like, oh boy, I've been through this one before. You know, and he looks at this, if you will, this, this ocean of people with their guns pointed out. I mean, let's face it, how many bullets does it take to take a guy down? It only takes one. And they all, if you will, have their arrows pointed. They're all ready. And David looks and God just starts to split this thing and take them all down. You know why? Because David asked and God said, this is the way we're going to do it. Go right at it. Just go straight at it. Take your boys. Let them follow you. And just go right at it. And I remind you, for what it's worth, where was this valley? What was it called? The valley of what? Rephaim, giants, excellent. The valley of Rephaim. So it's in a specific place. It's the Philistines in the valley of Rephaim. David comes after him and God says, go straight at it. And he goes straight at it. And bada boom, bada bing, the whole thing's taken down. Are you with me so far? Look at verse 22. It says, when the Philistines then, then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves where? Does that sound familiar? It's the same place. We're aware of that, right? Same people, same place. Don't miss this. Because you know what would be so easy to do at this moment? Is go, 
Well, let's refer back to the tapes of the last time we had this battle. The last time we had this battle, God said, go straight at it. So we're going to go straight at it. We'll take this thing down because that's what we do. But David doesn't do that. David goes, how about this time? Do you see that? Do you know how important this is? I mean, if the enemy goes and gets whooped in the valley of Rephaim, and they go back to the valley of Rephaim, what is the possibility that they're going to try to go at it the same way they did the first time? Kind of lost the first time pretty bad? You'd think they'd have a new tactic. But do you ever have a battle in your life? And you go, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And God said, this is what I want you to do. Call a couple of friends. Pray fast. Get to a place where you can get prayer. Get out of that situation. Break up with that fool. Whatever the thing is. And you go, all right, Lord. I'll do that. And the results were wonderful. You saw victory. And then strangely enough, you thought another challenge comes very similar. And you're like, hey, I thought I already passed this test. Why do I have to take this one again? And you go, now what did I do last time? I prayed. I fasted. Well, I called that church pastor or I went and I got prayer and I did this or that or I broke up with the person or whatever. And you go, oh, right. And you find yourself losing. And you're like, what in the world is this about? What's missing? Have you ever done that? You're just kind of like, wait a minute. I know I did a two-day fast last time. Maybe I should do a four-day fast this time. And by that point, you're like so weak you can't stand up. And then you're like, man, what was, the, what was it I was actually about? And here's the point of it. If it was about a methodology... And that was really what God was really interested in. Well, then he would have said, here's the handbook. Just do it this way and you're good. Why does God have it do it different? Because if it's going to be different with each battle, we have to keep coming to him for the answers. And I remind you, everything God does is driven by a desire to have a relationship with you. Have you ever asked God, what do I do next? Can you give me the next 15 steps? Okay, tell me, can you give me my five-year plan? All right, so I'm going to get this, then I'm going to get this house, then I'm going to move and do this. Because some of us are like planners and plotters, and we really want this thing on our diary. All right, God, all right, so, okay, here, by the way, here's my diary. Just write it in there yourself, and I'll kind of know. But why wouldn't God do that? Because let's just say, I mean, let's, we're, we're, in, we're in November. Oh, see, look at I can't even figure out what month we're in. We're in November, and imagine if you're like, God, just tell me what you want to do for the rest of the year. Where do you want me to be for Christmas Eve? Where do you want me to be? Well, what about this crazy baptism idea? Well, what about this? And should I go and bring food? I mean, imagine if and God just told you it all tonight. You know what would be more than likely what will happen? If we were honest, we'd be able to say, all right, God, see you next year. Because we already got our plans. Why in the world would I need to check with them unless things get rough? But if God really wants to spend tomorrow with you, why would he tell you tomorrow's plans if you'd skip a day and call on him two days from now. When God told Abraham, and this is in Genesis 12, and he says, look, go to a land I'll show you. I want you to leave it all behind. Follow me, I'll tell you when you get there. And you're like, uh, and you can imagine, Abraham has to tell Abram at that point, he has to tell his wife, who, by the way, wasn't born with the name Sarah. She was born with the name Sarai, which means contentious, or if you will, likes to argue. And he has to go tell a girl, names, argues a lot, 
hey, God just spoke to me. And he lived in an idol-worshipping house. So you can see her going, which one? He's like, I don't know. He didn't say. And he said, we need to go. Go where? He didn't say. How are we going to get there? He didn't say. What are we going to do when we get there? Oh, he didn't say. He's 75 when it starts. Who wants to explain that to her parents? The in-laws would say, oh, I don't know, all God said was do this and I'll tell you the rest later. And you'd think, wow, that just seems so cruel in a world where we like to plan ahead like that. Until the point where you realize God would ultimately call Abraham his friend. Imagine if you called your friend and you said, hey, tell me where you're going to be for the rest of the year. How many times we're going to run into each other? so that I don't have to call you or talk to you until we run into each other again. Would you feel like, wow, that just gives me a warm fuzzy inside. You like me. You really like me. You'd be like, wow, that's kind of weird. Are you actually hanging out with me out of obligation? So you do it as little as you need to. And I'm not talking about being weird and paranoid. The point is, is that God doesn't want to just give you all the information the same way every time or you wouldn't go to him again. So the battle hit first, and as the battle hit first, God said, go straight at it, and David went straight at it, and God brought about a great victory. By the way, he gives David the credit for it. Did you notice in verse 20? It said, David defeated them. See, when you obey God, God's going to give you the credit. Isn't that crazy how that works? So then another battle comes up. You know what's amazing? We live in a world where we think that God owes us to just make our life comfortable and easy. And if it's not, somehow that means something's wrong or God's being mean. That'd be, be like yelling at the dentist because he's fixing your teeth. You obviously don't care. You're drilling my tooth. You hate me. Oh, man, you keep talking like that. He just might hate you. But he may be doing it because it's actually the best thing that can happen to you. And often, God, look at, I mean, you've heard it said, look at, God never promised you an easy life or a comfortable life. He just promised to be your comfort in this life. He promised storms, that the rain would fall, the wind would blow, the floods would rise. The difference is, is that he promised that our houses would stand if we act on his word. And sometimes we're trying to live this life where, to be honest, our houses are rattling because we're just not really building our house on him. We're kind of actually trying to make him a wall hanging so that the house looks nicer. We're really not letting him be the builder. So David goes and he deploys, the, the enemy deploys himself again, same valley, same enemy, verse 23, and we're almost done now. And David inquired of the Lord. And he said, and he's like, all right, Lord, what about this time? And God says, don't go up. Remember the first time God said go, the second time God says, don't go that way. This is what I want you to do instead. Circle behind it. Get behind it this time. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to circle behind it. And they come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. Now, the word for mulberry is the word baka. Baka, by the way, means weeping. Baka. Uh, in America, and there are other places, by the way, I know where there's, a lot of where there's a lot of water that flows. There are these particular trees called weeping willows. Do you have those kind of things where they, the, the whole tree just kind of hangs and it looks like it's just crying, I guess is the idea. Well, there are certain trees where they kind of grow straight up, and there are certain trees where they kind of just hang down and they drop. Well, that's the idea of these particular trees. <clears throat> and it's a place here, by the way. Now it's a place of weeping. And you guys, in this case, you want to get behind it. 
Because in the first case, I want you to go straight at it. But the second case, I want you to actually follow me in this. Interesting, the first time we read the term was God. The second time we read the term was Lord. And so this time, follow me. So they went behind and it says in verse 24, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching on the top of the trees. I don't know what that would sound like. My guess is a really cool breeze, but sooner or later it starts to sound like you know marching. Then I want you to go. And notice in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord will go up before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so. And the Lord commanded him, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines all the way past Hertfordshire. In the first case, let me say, this is my walk with Jesus, and perhaps yours as well. In the first case, and you're probably aware of the fact I'm kind of a natural fighter, and I'm a bit of a spunky character by nature. I'm not normally the last guy off the couch. Well, sometimes. And so when God's like, go do that, I'm like, yeah, let's do that. We joke and say, sometimes God has to say, to some people, God has to say go. To other people, God has to say no. I'm a no person, you know. I'm like, God says, hey, just go, and I'm gone. And God's like, okay, no, no, no. He has to tell me where not to go. There are other people. God's like, get off the couch. Let's go do this. You know, so we're different people. But in the beginning of my walk with God, I was like a soldier and everything. I just wanted everyone to know. Jesus, I was like, let's go. Yeah. I didn't even know where I was going. I didn't know what I was doing. It didn't matter. Let's just do it. You know, I'm feeling like, oh, And somewhere down the line, and, and by the way, in the beginning of my walk, it was my walk with God. God still blessed so much of it, to be honest, because I just loved him and I wanted to do something. But as I mature in Christ, I don't stop that fervor, by the way. I don't become cynical and fat and nasty and all of that as people think that that's maturity, which doesn't make any sense at all. But I learn how to get behind the Lord and follow him in the battle. By the way, for what it's worth, look at verses 22 to 25, and let me ask you, who gets credit In verses 22 to 25 for winning the battle. You tell me. Who did? And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines. Who is the he? Who's David? Did you notice, even in the second battle, David still gets the credit for winning? Even though David really followed the Lord in the battle, because what was the one thing David had in common in both battles? Is he sought the Lord and he obeyed. That was the one thing we always have to do. But for that to happen, we have to be current. So all of a sudden, you know, you're married for a year and you're like, in your first year, this is what my husband or my wife loves. I just give the, you know, ten ten years down the line, it may not be the same thing. And now you're giving them something that you're like, they're like, oh, I used to like that. I can't believe I used to like that. Because as, you mat- as your relationship matures, different things mean different things now. And you know this, because there are certain people that they kind of know the icons of you. 
You barely know Daniel. Chances are what you're going to get him is something that might have a Batman insignia because that's kind of what you know on the outer circles. But as you grow closer and closer and closer, you know things like to get him tissues when he starts to watch certain kinds of movies or to get him a cushion if he actually talks about things like cesareans. There's certain things you learn as you grow closer to him, but there are things you wouldn't know from the outside when you're still buying a Batman, you know, sort of onesies. And, and the reason I say that is, as we grow closer, different things are, have a deeper meaning. And the same thing happens with the Lord. So maybe you're in a situation where you're kind of new and you realize, okay, Jesus, I really don't want to go to hell and I want to accept the gift. You paid the price. You paid for my ransom at the cross. I get that. Woohoo! I'll take it. But then it's like, wait a minute, your death's half the story. There's the resurrection and you have a whole new life now. And that whole new life is where I get to be intimate with you and be real with you. And we have this relationship. How cool is that? And okay, so but but in that, I don't want to just make you my homeboy or my just my friend and all that. You really have the right to be the architect of my reinvention. Do something beautiful in my life. And so now all of a sudden things change. And in the beginning, it's like, all right, Lord, just you just tell me what to do and I'll do it for you. And that's how it starts. But as I grow with the Lord, I start realizing God doesn't want me to do anything for him. He wants me to do everything with him. And that's a really different story. So then the same battle arises and I'm like, okay, now, and the Lord may let me lose it in the beginning because really the bottom line is that he's going, well, wait a minute, you really didn't check with me on this Follow me into this one. I'm going to take care of it for you. Follow. I have a whole army you don't even need to worry about. Just You just follow me in this battle. I'm still going to give you credit because you're still going to be victorious. Now, as we go to prayer in this, the Lord really has a place. But understand, God desires for his people to be victorious. But there is no victory without obedience. And we try to tell God, this is how we're going to do it. And God, I could hear him chuckle and go, well, you can give it out a try if you want. But when you come back, I'll beat up. I'll tell you how we win this. And we've all had our chances where we've realized that we've gone to battle in some stupid way. And God is really kind, to be honest, to let us get worked. He'll still jump in, pull you out of the water like Peter when he fell. He'll rescue you first, but he'll also rebuke you. He'll change you and say, hey, let's not do that again. Keep your eyes on me. Please keep your eyes on me. Because I didn't die for you to send you to heaven. I died to be with you. And every morning I want to I wake up with you. I want to talk to you a little bit about the day. But I'm not going to tell you everything of the day, because if I told you everything about the day, then you wouldn't talk to me the next morning. And then sometime around noon, let's talk again. Let's hang out. Let me tell you more stuff. Let me tell you again that I love you because now it'll have a different meaning than it did when you woke up. And as you go to bed at night, let's talk. Get in my word. Let me speak to you. Let me tell you about who I've been because I'm still the same guy yesterday, today, and forever. And, And now that you've lived the day and you kind of feel like you carry the baggage of your foolish choices of the day into bed with you, well, you know, I'm still faithful to forgive. Take it to me so you don't have to go to sleep with that on your shoulders. And let's just go to sleep clean and, and be free. Because the more you walk with me, the Lord's speaking, the more you're going to see that the enemy really has been taken down in the Red Sea. 
And maybe he can scream and he can shout and he can buzz around the car, but his stinger's gone. And he can run around like a roaring lion and he can roar and he can lie and he can accuse. But I've ripped out his teeth, so he's no threat to you. Because you belong to me and I'm not going to let that happen. It tells us in First John, whoever is born of God keeps himself and the wicked one does not touch him. Either God's lying or he's telling the truth. I'm going with the fact that he's telling the truth. So as we go to prayer, let me ask you, have you said yes to the gift of Jesus? I'm not asking if you've gone to church or have you intellectually agreed. If you drop the knee and said, will you be mine? Have you said yes? Because you know if you say yes, the whole world's going to change, right? The guy drops the knee and he's got the ring in his hand. Saying yes is going to do a whole lot more than just a Facebook status change. Every area of your life is going to change. But you're saying yes to the one who created you, who knows how you work, who knows how to bless you in ways you don't know how to bless you. He actually knows how to make your life amazing. And I speak as one who is a product of and continues to be if you will, a patron of that, a client of that. I love my God, but I couldn't remotely love him like he loves me. And in a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to say yes. I'm not going to call you forward and make you stand up or any of that, but I'm going to give you a chance to say, look, at if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be made whole, you'll be saved, you'll be his. That's the choice you need to make. But if you have said yes to Jesus as Savior, as Ransom, are you willing to let him be Lord? Where you get behind him in the battle now. Not just saying, can I go, can I go, can I go? Let's face it, at the beginning of our walk, can I, is it still okay to do this? Can I do that? Can I play tennis? How about we? Is we okay? You know, I don't know, Xbox. How's Xbox now? You know, and, and it's like in the beginning, it's like, can I, can I? And sooner or later, you're like, you know what? I just want to be a blessing to you. I'm going to stop asking, can I? And I'm just going to spend time with you because I don't have to ask it anymore when I'm with you. I just want to get behind you and love you and enjoy you. Do you know what it's like to delight in the Lord's delight? To know that he rejoices over you with singing? What kind of God rejoices over you with singing? One that's in love. Oh, let him love you, beloved. Let him love you. Will you pray with me? God, I want to, in heaven, I want to thank you for the beauty of this text, for the wonder of being able to just be with you and to hear your voice and to just bask in your beauty one more day and thank you for another day of being able to just say, what about today? What do you have today? And I don't want to be on autopilot. I don't want to be on coast. I just want to love you more and understand your love for me more. So I want to start by thanking you for saving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me and raising again. Lord, I recognize only one time do I need to stand at the altar to be officially married. But I know that in doing so, I commit to saying yes every day. Now, not because I have to recommit because somehow I'm going to lose the marriage, but rather just because I want to be a person that really genuinely is married in more than just my hand. But married in my heart. And the choices that I make and the plans that I make and the values that I set, I want that to be the case between us for every breath I breathe. So I want to be current. I'm thankful that Abraham was current or he would have slain his son. Slain his son. 
And I pray, Lord, first here and for every believer who has said yes to you that maybe we've been still trying to get old instructions on battles that are actually, in essence, new battles, even if it seems like it's an old place. But I want to hear from you afresh and anew because I know that I will never follow you into anything but victory. I don't want to take the old ways and try to apply them because what I really need is just a fresh walk with you. And for that to happen, I need to have a fresh relationship with you. I don't want to just look back at a world that where I saw so many miracles, Lord, and yet robbing myself of the miracles you want to do today. So I pray, Lord, today that you would refresh my heart and the hearts of those who have made claim to you to a fresh and vibrant walk with you. And here at the sound of this voice, if there be any who have never accepted or you're just not sure if you've ever really said yes to the gift of Jesus, Tonight, I would love the privilege of just inviting you to a simple prayer that says this, God in heaven, I'm a sinner, but I believe you punished my sin on the cross of your son, Jesus the Christ, who died for me and rose again. And I accept his payment for me, confessing him as my ransom, my savior, but also as my Lord. Take the old me and lay it to rest permanently and raise up a new me that above all other things is yours. I confess Jesus is my Savior and my Lord and I hand myself to you. You're on your knee saying, will you be mine? And my answer is yes. So have me then. Even right now when my heart is racing and I realize this is of course the right decision and that you're confirming it and you're telling me you love me and my heart just want to say yes. So I say yes. I say yes tonight. Have me. I am yours. Make my life your masterpiece. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, you want to make it your own, I ask you to say tonight, Amen. Lord, you've heard our prayers. You've heard us tonight. May our relationship with you thrive as we seek you and hear your voice. And may we grow to know to not only know you, but to love you better. In Jesus' name, amen.